so David, you know, it's great to have, it's great to speak with you. Um, if anyone, they don't know, this is David Bendith. He is a creative professional. He's a producer. He's a mixer. He's more than that. He's everything. And um, he had a fantastic career in the music business. Um, he's pretty much done everything. And I'm a big fan of his records. Um, I love the Paramore record that he did. Um, I, I listened to some rock. I really like the Breaking Benjamin record. But also, too, I mean, working with... Um, you know, remixing the Elvis Presley classics to working with artists like Bruce Hornsby and Vertical Horizon and another range of artists. But here is the thing, David, like, correct me if I'm wrong. So you started out as a musician and then spent some time working at major music labels like RCA. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we got to go back to me. To me, I was very lucky. I mean, I was born in the 50s, you know, mid 50s. And I grew up in England where, you know, there was so many amazing artists. And I came up through that whole scene of, of Chuck Berry to Nat King Cole to, I mean, I would, we would listen to the radio. There was nothing else to do, you know. <laughs> there was one station on the TV. So I grew up with amazing songs. And when I was, you know, 10 or 11, I moved to Canada, which kind of kept my music coming because we would get everything from England first. You know, it would be wonderful. You know, all of the Genesis and yes. And so we, as I grew up, you know, Cream, all these groups I would get. Um, and American music was there, but it was not as relevant to me as British music and even Canadian music. So I was very lucky to grow up um, and come up in, in a time where great songs meant everything. Now, didn't so, you go to school? I mean, if I'm correct me, didn't you go to school with like Getty Lee or something of Rush? I did. I went to school at, at a school in Toronto called George Vanier Collegiate. And, uh, and my classes were crazy. It was Howie Mandel and Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee and Alana Miles. Um, I could get Maurice LaMarche, Lorne, my friend Lorne did uh, drums for Journey, Van Halen, and Rush. He's been, he'd been doing Rush for the last 14 years. So we all came up in a very suburban area of Toronto. And, and it was very creative because those, those winters were long and cold and dark. So we had to do something, you know, we had to take up something. And with me, it was always music always music. So you're a very musical, creative being. So when you worked at the major music labels, did you like that experience or no. did you find I it what? <laughs> I hated it. I mean, you have to understand, I took, I toured for like 12 years. So from the ages of 17, I was on the road touring with cover bands, you know, and then with my own band eventually because I was making records, but it got to a point where I had a child, you know, and I had to get a job. It was that simple. And, and I went out there and got a job as an A&R person. Luckily, it was Columbia Records or CBS Records at the time, see, in Canada. Um, Loverboy, Celine Dion, um, they were on our label. And then I'd signed some artists to the label. Um, and so I didn't like that. The first day of my job, I went into my desk, took the pencils, the eraser, 
and threw them all in the garbage. <laughs> you know, I wanted nothing to do with that part of the business. I wanted to be, I was a staff producer. That's what it said on my business card, staff producer. Um, and that's what I did. I made records for, for them. And then I had a big opportunity to move to New York. They, they had an opening. It's, um, well, back then it was called Columbia Records International. And what they did was they took all the groups from around the world, Shaw Day, Men at Work, Loverboy, and then they went to either Epic or Columbia. So my job was to, to take the music both labels and then they would make a decision you know who wanted the group so I got offered that job permanently and I turned it down and they were very disappointed in me I had a child and I was divorced and I had to be there on the weekends and I I went back and forth pretty well every week for months um maybe eight months something crazy I lived in a hotel and I, I turned down the job and, you know, whatever. They didn't like me after that too much because they didn't see me as a team player. You know, I was a renegade, you know, sort of getting offered a big job and then turning it down, personal reasons. So that was my introduction. Yeah, I, I, I liked the experience. I liked the artists, loved the music, hated the, the business. You know, I never really so let me ask you this. What artist did you end up signing at the label? So when I started, I worked with Platinum Blonde, which is a very famous Canadian band. Um, and I signed this, uh, another couple of local groups. We had some gold records. Um, and then I found Katie Lang. Uh, and this is in her biography, or actually Stephen uh, Stone, where I brought her to the label. and They didn't want to sign her because she didn't write her own songs. But that was the American company that didn't want her. I want. I had a contract with her sent out. I was ready to go, uh, and I was very, very disappointed. Went to the president, said, "If you don't let me sign her, I'm going to quit." He said, "Bye, David. That was a good excuse." And then I went immediately to BMG, which was uh, Bertelsmann Music Group, which was RCA and Arista. And the first group I signed was the Cowboy Junkies, and then I signed the Crash Test Dummies. And then a slew of other country artists and rock artists, pop artists. Um, and if anyone doesn't know, uh, the Crash Test Dummies, um, they actually have a famous song on a famous movie soundtrack, Dumb and Dumber. Um, so, so when you hear, how does it go, David, that song? Clive Davis called it M times four, because it would be mm, 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 mm. And originally, I think, Brad was going to put lyrics there, you know. We played the song, we listened to it. I said, this is interesting because no one's ever hummed on the song. And we were going to release it. He says, well, I'll get, you know, I'll get around to, you know, writing some lyrics, of course. That never happened. We left it the way it was. It was his idea, really, not going not gonna to lie. He, we all loved the idea of this humming. But I don't think anybody expected it to go to number one. Certainly... You know, it was, a, as Brad said, it was a universal language humming. And so that's why it was such a big hit. Everybody could, could would know the words without, without, I think we had number ones in 70 countries or something crazy, crazy. This is it, right? Got into an accident and caught and caught the school button when he finally came back. I turned from... 
And you know what's amazing is this song has like 25 million views on YouTube and has 11,000 comments. And I love the first comment. You have no idea how hard it is to ask Alexa to play this song. Yeah. I mean, it was hilarious. You have to imagine me walking into a meeting at BMG Canada with 20 people around the table and say, I've got their song. And I think everybody at the table looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what the heck are we going to, you know, who's going to listen to this? But the story was endearing. And we made an incredible video. And then as the momentum built, this was the second record. I'd already put out another record, The Ghost That Haunt Me. And it had a, it went platinum in Canada, sold 100,000. And it started to do well in America, but nothing like this was going to do. So it was, it was a time in music where things were open, Dean. You know, you could, you could put out something great and everyone would love it based on the fact that it was just good or it was great. But, well, you know what, David? That's the thing. You know, it, you said when things were open. And I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I embrace change. I mean, my background is in marketing, you know, and went to college for marketing, which yeah. means, you know, we, we, we can't have, you know, the market changes constantly, like the earth moves under your feet. I get that. But yeah. I do kind of, no one in the right mind misses some of the, right? Every time when there's a new technology, you right. lose something. You, I mean, right? Am I wrong? Don't you lose something? You know what? We sound like a bunch of old men, but you're right. The truth of the matter is technology changes everything. Of course it does. And in some ways, it's been incredible. And it's really helped music. And it's helped a lot of people that can't play an instrument or DJs or electronic music, you know, all of that, trance uh, and rap, hip hop. It's made, it's, it's made music affordable to make. Has it lost something in translation? Yeah, I mean, music was meant to be played in a room together with people playing instruments and having fun and vibing. And, and, and David, and, and that's what I mean. And I'm not, see, I'm, it's not like an, a guy yearning from the old days because honestly, like, I love where I'm at. I never at one point wishes I was like in the past somehow, but it's like the invention of their microwave. Like, I remember like someone, microwave was great. You could cook your meal in 30 seconds, but- you know what you lost? You lost the yeah. cooking and the, the family dinner. get exactly the family dinner. Well, right. But I mean, this is the one thing about music that's always great is it's very, very difficult still, even with technology, to write great lyrics. And to me, great melody, great lyrics, that's got to come from here. That's not going to come from a computer. I don't care what anybody says, which is really the essence of a great song. And so, yes, the technology has changed the music, but I think as, as far as the sentiment and moving mountains, great lyrics and great singers still are responsible for that. Um, and I don't think it's just anybody that can do that. And of course, there's lots of one-off hits here and there. They all come and they all go. I've had them, everybody's had them, but great songs last forever. And you can't really fake that. You know, you can't really fake that. You can't. And, and you know, David, and I agree with you, but you mentioned that you were really batting for an artist called Katie Lang based out of Canada. And 
honestly, I never knew who Katie Lang was until I heard a song called Constant Craving. And actually, when I first heard that song, believe it or not, I was actually attending, um, I was in college at University of Delaware, maybe sometime, was it in like the 90s, early 90s, maybe? And um, I heard it. And I don't know, great song. Um, This is kind of what the song, if you haven't heard the song. Great song, timeless song, epic song. Um, again, One of my good friends wrote that song mm-hmm. with Katie Lang. We came up together as teenagers during the Rush Vanier era. There was a kid that I'd always heard about called Ben Mink, and he played violin and guitar. And we were we were friends because he was good friends with a band called The Hobbits that were near me. And we always stayed in contact. And then finally, we put a band together. Ben Mink actually played a bunch of gigs with Rush, but he had his own band called FM, and they were amazing. And Ben wrote that song, uh, and I, I don't know if you want me to get into the story behind that song, but there's an amazing story behind that song. Yeah, yeah sure, sure, yeah. I, I, yeah, you know why I think, you know what, talk about it briefly, because here's the thing. When people listen, I'm like, wow, that's an amazing story. Why didn't I think of this? Maybe like, I don't know, this can help me, so sure. So the story is, when we all came up together, we used to all jam together, know each other. I'm talking about like teenagers, early 20s. And Ben Mink would talk about his favorite groups. He loved rock music, he still does. And he produced that record, by the way. He's a great producer, great musician. Anyway, um, one day he called me and says, look, I think the Rolling Stones have stolen my song. Really? What do you got? He says, I'm gonna, I think we're gonna have a lawsuit. And I said, okay, you know, first of all, forget that idea because the, the Rolling Stones are gonna have 30 lawyers. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, they have a song called Has Anybody Seen My Baby? You can play that song if you want, Dean. You know, maybe the show. Yeah, yeah, keep on going. Let me find it. Oh, it's called Has Anybody Seen My Baby, written by Keith Richards, Richards and Mick Jagger. You know, again, we're all kids from the hood in, in the suburbs of, of Toronto. And uh, and he's telling me these co-written a Rolling Stones song in his Wait, I found I found it on I I found it on um yeah. play the chorus. Has any okay all right here we go. I hear Play the chorus. Play the chorus. This is the constant craving chorus. Okay, so I tell Ben, who's my friend, you're out of your mind. You know, like everybody thought this whole idea was crazy. And then they got some lawyers that got involved. They got to the Stones. And Keith Richards goes, okay, my daughter's been home all summer. She had to do summer school work, something like this. And she kept playing Constant Craving by Katie Lang. And I think somehow that whole melody and chords got into my head, (laughs) you know, which happens. And he says, you're right, Ben. I 
inadvertently took your song and made it, has anybody seen my baby? So, which is funny coming from the Stones because they, what's that band, The Verve? I mean, they stuck it to them when they sampled them. They really stuck it to The Verve. But with this, they were guilty. So not guilty, but they ended up giving Ben Mink and Katie Lang a percentage of Has Anybody Seen My Baby as songwriters, which who would have thought, you know, I ended up writing a song for Jeff Beck, which in my life of dreams, I think I almost fainted that day when I found out. And Ben ends up writing a song for the Stones. You know, Rush go on to be one of the biggest bands in the world. Our area was Fred Mandel played with Queen, um, Alice Cooper, Pink Floyd, and he was the keyboard player. We're all from the same area. And so there is justice, you know, and the Stones did the right thing. God bless them. Like, you got it. If that was me and I had my song on a Rolling Stones record like that, that's history. You know, it's fantastic. Well, you know, it's amazing and very humbling for Keith Richards actually to say, listen, you know, um, I listened to your song. It got yeah. into my head and I wrote yeah. it again. Yeah. I mean, for him to admit that, you know, and, and his daughter probably said, uh, Dad, doesn't that song sound like one of my songs I play in the room? You know, Katie Lang. And he probably realized that he that the melody and the chords, the key, the tempo, the whole thing was the same. So, so David, so let's do a quick um, transition. So yeah. you work, by the way, thank you for that story. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's millions of people never realized that this little Canadian artist hired a song kind of get ripped off by Keith Richards. Um, but let me ask you this. So you spend time working in the major music labels. You really didn't like it, but you've worked with some really cool artists along the way there. You came out, you wanted to prove yourself as a music producer. And you, you worked with a, 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 a metal act, Breaking Benjamin, that, you know- oh, let, me, let, me, let me go. So I get transferred from Canada to America and I work for RCA. Okay. I didn't want to come to America back in the old day, but now I'm ready. So I take the job and I was there for eight years. Mm -hmm. And so I got a lot of, it was different because I was not in Canada, I was in America, which is the big, you know, for Canadians, America and New York is the big time. So I did the Elvis record and uh, things didn't work out from a business standpoint. They weren't happy with me because I was supposed to get a lot of money. <laughs> and so it, we parted ways. And that's when everything started independently. And I give credit to, you know, I know this can sound crazy, but there's a, there's a great producer called David Foster. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Of course, of course. I know David Foster. Who doesn't know? So when I, when I left RCA, I didn't know what to do. So I, call, I knew David Foster. I'd met him a bunch of times in Canada. He's Canadian. And I said, what do I do? And he says, he starts laughing on the phone. We're on the phone. You know. He says, well, why don't you just do what you've done your whole life? Make records. <laughs> play guitar. He says, you still playing guitar? I go, yeah. He says, well, you're a great guitar player. Go play some gigs, go into the studio, make some records. I'm like, really? That's it? He goes, yeah, is there anything else to talk about? And I go, no, he says, good. Speak to you later. And that was that was David Fonda. I remember hanging up the phone going, okay, I guess that's what I should do. And so that evolved immediately into working with Breaking Benjamin, which I was lucky to be there at that moment. 
Got it. So you, you work with Breaking Benjamin, um, yeah. a band that was about to get dropped from their label. You came in, saved the day, delivered a great album, went platinum. And then after that, you worked yeah. with another artist called Paramore. And you worked with their breakthrough album, which had hits like Misery Business, that probably the song that they're most famous for. So what happens is this band started out as an indie band on right. an indie label. Then that you record their first major label album. There's a second one. Second they, one. Yeah. Okay. And, so, and, yeah. so, so they blow up. I mean, you know, Haley becomes, you know, yeah. the, the new female frontman hero. And you're a part of it. You guided it. And let me ask you this. Why didn't you do the second album? Or I'm sorry, why didn't you do the follow-up album? Good. I mean, everybody asks me this question. I'm sure there's a lot of different comments about it, but I'll just give you the short and long of it. There was a lot of broken bridges. The first one was basically when I'd finished Riot, I handed it into the label and they, meaning Lior Cohen, who was the president of uh, Warner's Worldwide, didn't think there was a hit. Didn't, didn't hear anything on there. He says, you know what, we're gonna get, we're gonna get Chad Kroger to write from Nickelback Haley a hit. So, so let me ask you this, David. When people say, I don't think it's a hit, yeah. do they really know or no. is it really a guess? I, I, this was his opinion. And okay. you got to remember, they just signed Nickelback. So he really wanted to probably impress them by going, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. You can write for this new band, Paramore. And when I told the band that that was what was happening, they went nuts, as you can imagine, because right. we worked for four or five months on Riot. Okay. And they were teenagers. I mean, you can imagine the, the outburst that they had of putting everything in their lives into this record. And I got back to the label and said, look, no offense, but I'm not doing it. And they, he, not they, he flipped out at me. Who's he? he? Like, Who's he? Leor Cohen, the president okay. of the Leor Cohen. You don't have control of this band. You know, you, you do what I, we tell you to do. So, so Leor Cohen, just so people know, Leor Cohen at that point, when you were working on the album, was the president uh, for Warner. And now he doesn't he head up like a YouTube division right now, music division? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he, he, I mean, okay, it goes even, it gets even worse than this. Oh, you ready? Sure. Here we go. The truth. Lior Cohen signed me to my first deal at the age of 22 okay. as the A&R guy for his own label, Sidewalk Records, through EMI. So I had a relationship with him when I was practically a teenager. He knew exactly who I was. Okay, so so you you delivered this album and he hated it, but the band no, he agreed. Didn't hate it. He didn't think it was a hit. Okay, and the okay. band agreed with you. The band was like, "Listen, we agree with you, David." We love this album. We we poured our, our hearts into this album. So what happened there? So the manager was with us, of course. And the A&R guy, to a certain degree, was pretty well with us. And, you know, Fueled by Raman were the ones that kind of said, let it go. Let it go. You know, they Lior was upset with me 
And at the same time, at that point, I had Q Prime managing me, which was Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mitch. When, when they said when they said let it go, what what do you mean like let it go? Let the record come out. Stop forcing the band. Uh, okay, got it. So, within the next six months, Lear Cohen hired um, Rob Cavallo as the president of Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and then got, who who had done produced Green Day, a bunch of different records, and he got him to work on Decode which was the, the soundtrack for that movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it was huge at the time. Twilight. Twilight. So not only did he make him the president of his label, he also gave him the next Paramore record to do. Okay. Okay, so, 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 so it, was a, it was a gift. It was a treat. It was a, you know, what, welcome aboard. Here's a buffet. Here's some M&Ms. And the band were, you know, whatever they were, 18, 19 at this point, um, they're not going to go against what all these people are telling them. You know, like th- there, was, there was politics now. And, you know, look, how do I feel about it? I think they got the right guy to do the next record. I know that sounds weird, but I, would, I could never have made that record. So I'm glad that somebody else did it. So, that, so, that's so let me ask you this, but let me ask you this. What about like the team that worked with a band? Yeah. Didn't, like what about like, you know, the, 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 didn't they have a say? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's why. Because Haley was the only one signed to the deal. They were sidemen. You know what's crazy about, listen, I, I mean, what's crazy about the entertainment business is like all other businesses, you know, when things are moving in the right direction, they don't really shuffle the chairs. It's like a football team or a baseball team. Yeah. It, like changing a producer and a team that made the first round success is like, guess what? We won the Super Bowl, guys. Let's fire everybody and create a whole new team. Like that yeah, is well, crazy. It's not, it's, look, you know, I was always troubled in the music business because I spent 18 years working for labels. 18 years. And before that, I was signed to EMI as an artist and RCA as an artist. So I knew where the bodies were buried. When I was dealing with managers and labels and A&R people, I could tell you what was gonna happen a year before it happened because I did the job. I knew where everything was buried. I knew whether a record was gonna get worked or not. The early signs. I've been in a thousand marketing meetings, promotion meetings, sales meetings. So it, it, it never surprised me because when somebody new came in, they had to take credit, Dean. You've got to understand, they had to sort of say, well, this is why I'm in my job, because I did this. Mm-hmm. And if that meant dismantling, you know, for me, it was always like taking the New York Yankees franchise and making it the Cleveland Indians. I could never understand it. But I guess if you could say, hey, I built the Cleveland Indians, then great. But that's that's what happened in a lot of cases, just so people could say, hey, I'm earning my money. I'm doing something creative, whatever it was. 
Right. I get it. It's just a lot of politics and, and bull involved. So, so let me ask you this. So, all right. You worked on the Breakthrough Paramore record and it produced their biggest song called Misery Business, something that, you know what? I actually like typed the song up not too long ago because I know what I was going to discuss with you. I just kind of wanted to like, you know, see what was going on. And I actually read somewhere that Haley didn't even want to sing that song anymore because she called like another girl, like, a slut or something a whore yeah a whore oh, well well hang on i mean i understand it she stands for a lot of things in society that are being corrected right now and so calling somebody that name right now it is not something that you know you should be proud of but it was make but it was make believe it was a story yeah but uh, remember she was 17 when she wrote right. that lyric and I, and I think about a seven, but think about David, a 17 year old, hormones, guys, jealous of girls. She I mean, me, come on. She gave me the lyric and she said, what do you think? And I said, you wrote it, sing it. You, it wasn't like, I said, hey, why don't you use the word whore? She wrote the, she used the word. So, but at the time, you know, she was very immature. And there was a lot of people writing a lot of immature lyrics, Dean. It happens. But, but, you know. but, but guess what, Dave, right? But she was immature, but what she wrote was in a snapshot of her time in her life. So, yeah. and she wants to forget that she had that time in her life. Okay, okay. All right, you know, fair enough. Fair I'm enough. not saying she said that to me. Oh, right, I'm no, I, saying, I totally, fair enough, fair enough. That's how I see this, you know. Yeah, and I hear you like society right now, as you know, Dave, where we are with cancel culture, you know, listen, people are afraid to say anything. They are afraid to do something. Chris Rock said that they're taking the fun out of comedy. You know, it's the people on the right and the left. I mean, everyone's like, this is going too far. Can we please take a step back? You know, the way I see it, it's like COVID. You know, eventually everybody in the world is going to have their skeletons dragged out of the closet and everyone's going to have something bad said against them. Whether it happened or not, it's irrelevant. But the truth of the matter is we have all been guilty in our lives, especially our parents, especially our parents of saying things they probably regret or doing things they probably regret. Everybody in the world, if you say that's never happened to you, you're a fucking liar. So it depends. You know, when you look at the 70s and the 80s with rock music, you look at all the bands and all the groupies and all of the con. I mean, you don't want to go there because if that's the case, you take every rock band in the world and, and you know, write a story. The truth of the matter is that's what made rock music. <laughs> no, no, Dave, made you're, you're absolutely right. You know, Dave, <laughs> It seems like we're in a in a in a culture where there's this great awakening of like, wow, you did really bad things. But as you said, Dave, we've all done you know we all have done things we regret. It's 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 like it's like COVID. Everyone's going to get it. We've all felt that way. So let me ask you this. Yeah. So now you wrote this breakthrough album, produced this breakthrough album with Paramore, um, Misery Business, and so Olivia Rodrigo. The, the, you know, the new pop star, 
She writes a song called Good For You, right? I mean, it's one of the most played songs uh, this <laughs> year. And it sounds exactly like Misery Business. Yeah, kind of, okay. Yeah. It doesn't. The chorus, the chorus, chorus does. Yeah, yeah, okay. The verses don't to me, but whatever. I agree, yeah, the, the, right. Well, the, the, the verses are talky though, right? I mean, although the verses don't sound exactly, they're still kind of talky. And like, I mean, it's just, put it this way. It's the same approach. Yes, it's punk, punk pop. Right, same approach. So what happened there? Did she like, hey, I'm going to steal Paramore's song, or no. was this like a Keith Richards thing? Oh my goodness, I can't believe I wrote Misery Business again. What's the word I, he I hear for this? Polar uh, uh, polarization, what's it, no, not a, uh, it's not really ripping it off. It's it's plagiarizing. No inter interpolation. Oh, oh yeah, interpolation, right. which is taking the essence of a song and keeping a lot of the same, you know, innuendo mm -hmm. uh, and nuance, and then rewriting it. But from what I understand, and this is public now, I think that she did go to to the band and ask them, as she did with Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift made a deal. Paramore didn't really want anything to do with it because, as you know, she stopped playing Misery Business years ago. She doesn't want anything to do with the song. So the fact that it was going to come back was not a good thing, as far as I think Haley was concerned. Again, I'm not saying she said that to me. I'm saying that was my impression, that I wish this would all go away. Mm -hmm. So when I think they couldn't, I think she just went ahead and released it anyway. You know what I mean? She was like, you know what? Let's put out this song and see what, and of course it goes on to be it. And that's now this, now you got big business involved. More, you got publishing companies, you know, they're saying, whoa, 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 you know, give us this, give us that. They worked out a deal. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know why anybody's freaked out about that because every time I turn around, someone's ripped somebody off. I mean, I hear it all the time. When I, when I had done the Paramore record, there had to be 20 bands that sounded like that after Paramore. You know, or even breaking Benjamin. People, people copy stuff. That's how the business works. And I'm and I'm responsible in my own way for doing that with my own groups that I love. You know what I mean? Taking elements. So David, let me ask you this. Why is everyone selling their publishing today? Like I mean, for like whether it's Bruce Springsteen, um, I'll tell you why. Because okay. Diane Warren said, you know, if people don't know who she is, she's a very, you know, a legendary songwriter. And she said, selling my songs would be like selling my kids off. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't know. I totally disagree. I think that the issue has become this simple. People are selling because they're, they're at a stage in their life where they've already got screw you money. And they've got families to think about, children, grandchildren. Who wants to be trying to get, you know, Sony accounting department on the phone 10 years from now to get a check that they forgot, you know? Who cares? And with streaming, well, you know, they're ripping us to treads. I mean, the, the money is disgusting. It's like, you know, it's like paying somebody to sweep a street in, in a slum. So that that is really not worth as much as it was 20 years so, ago. So, David, you mentioned something about streaming. So do you think 
and tell me if I'm crazy. I got in discussion with a buddy and he goes, you know what, Dean? I don't think Spotify and some of these digital streaming services, they will not be the future. Well, it's already happening. You can see it. I mean, you're looking at blockchain. Blockchain, even the beginning of NFT, Bitcoin is replacing money. You know, very, these things, you know, it was like, somebody says, well, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon in 1960, you know, three, everyone's like, oh, what are you, how the hell are we going to get to the moon? You know, ain't going to happen. It's impossible. How, what can go that fast? What are they going to eat? What are they going to do when they get there? What are they going to walk around? So all of these logistics, same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Change in everything in life takes time. And right now you're watching a revolution. It's starting. It's already started and it's well on its way. So Facebook was the biggest thing. What? Well, so David, you, David, you talked about a revolution. Yeah. I really think that like we've reached the pinnacle of big tech. I think yeah. whether it's Facebook and Twitter, yeah. I yeah. think this is like the pinnacle. I think there's going to be a actually um, a fast um somewhat decline i mean if you look at twitter now you have other companies and other platforms that are eating like substack okay sure. where you have these influencers that i'm not on twitter i'm in substack so we're finally seeing like starting to crumble would you agree absolutely i mean tiktok i'll give you an example tiktok without tiktok there would be no music right now Agreed. TikTok is music right now. People don't care if you're, you know, like if you phone Universal Records right now and say, I've got a huge smash on Facebook <laughs> or YouTube, they go, yeah. So say, if I got a hundred thousand plays on TikTok today, they'd be going, come right over. You know, I got to talk to you. you but David, here's the only thing with TikTok. And by the way, I love TikTok. I think it's cool. I mean, unlike everybody else, I can be on the couch. I, start looking at TikTok and I'm like, wow, it's been three hours. But here's the thing with TikTok. And I said this from the very beginning, it separates the art, the song from the creator. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, and let me explain this. I'm an artist. I put a song on TikTok. And then before you know it, you could have like a thousand people taking the song that I wrote and chopping it up, do it, manipulating it. So, my song that I wrote is not even associated with me. You know, Dean, th th that goes with society right now. It's to do with your phone. It's to do with your computer. It's to do with instant gratification. An instant thing for a song, an instant thing to watch. A 30 second, everything's 30 seconds. Your whole life goes by in 30 second intervals. But as I said, the revolution is happening underneath. And I'm going to give you a great example. You know, in the last two years, everybody's been locked up. Everybody's been at home. Everybody's had to learn to communicate with their family, had to learn to communicate with their teacher, their college professor, whatever it is. And so what, what else happened was really interesting. Do you know that Sweetwater sold a million instruments last year? In other words, people are at home learning to play the drums, the bass, the guitar. This is all going to take effect three, four years from now when some of those get really good. And so you're going to see music come back in a completely different way. It's already started. You know, there's a lot, people are accepting acoustic music 
more than they've ever. And look at vinyl. Vinyl is bigger than a CD, bigger than a cassette. Vinyl sales are massive. Who would have thought you'd see that? So you're going to see a whole change. But we are right now at the middle of that, like the, the beginning of that change, working our way to the middle. And that's how I see it. No, I, I agree with you. We are in a revolution. And um, I think we're in a music revolution. We're in a political revolution. We are in a, we're, we're, we're in a fight. And I think, you know, people are, people, I think are very confused too. I think people don't know what to think. I think some people, where we are, I don't know. It's just very hard to explain. Um, everyone, everyone calls me and like, Dean, what do you think is going to happen next? If I were to get, if I were to tell anybody, every call that I get, Dean, what do you think's going to happen next? Well, you know, I always had this theory about, do you believe in aliens, Dean? I don't know if you do or not, but do you believe uh, in Yes, I, I do. I, yes, I, I do okay. believe in a some UFOs. People do, some people I do. No, I, I saw one, by the way, yes. Okay, so a lot of people don't believe in aliens, sure. and a lot of people do, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of doubt. Like, if this was in court, well, is there a reasonable doubt? Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know. There's probably, the chances are that there's something, right? So anyway, I've always thought that the one thing to unify the world, and we're getting out of music here, but would be the aliens. Like, in other words, we, we as the world would have to answer to a different species or a different society. And that would bring the world together because we would all have finally one thing in common, which was our survival. And I kind of look at COVID like that in a way, because it's the one thing that's attacked the world at the same time. And we're having a problem all dealing with it at the same time, because we're still living the way we were three, four years, five years ago. But whether we know it or like it or hate it doesn't really matter. We've all had to deal with this terrible thing that's happened to everybody. And I don't just mean the health. I mean what it's done to people mentally. You know, it's stopped their lives. And imagine Dean being 17, 18, 19 right now and sort of you can't go anywhere. There's nothing open. The restaurants, you got to wear a mask. You gotta, I mean, it must be terrible for the youth of today to live like this. It, David, it, it is. I can't imagine. Like, think as you said, think about like the 17, 18 year old where their, their, their years have been robbed that they can't get back. I mean, look at you, yeah. me. We've lived our years. I was yeah. never in high school saying you can't go to the prom. You can't hang out with your friends. It, it's a tragedy. Because those are the things that shape us for the future. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that this is the first time the world's had to grapple with something this big. And we're not doing a great job with it. But what will happen is they'll learn eventually how to deal with these kinds of things. We'll learn how to get on with our family. Learn how to get on with our friends. Learn how to be cooped up in a room with people. You have to change the way you think to, to survive like this and learn how to remake music in a different way, which to be honest with you, is kind of cool. I, I've done great during this time. I've loved COVID for music because you're able to work with people you've never worked with and you're able to communicate with them without the cost of a studio. You can do it with your computer. You got, I got a whole setup over here. You know, hang on, I'll show you. Well, wow, let me, let's see it. 
Oh, wow. So, I mean, to me, I don't have to leave the house and I can mix a song. Can I see that real quick again? Can I see that? Wow, that's pretty not, cool. It's in the middle of being. Oh, got it. Okay. Got, All right. it's, I'm built, well, no, I've been using it, but sure. not at least in all my outboard gears. Well, well, you know, David, here's the thing with COVID. I think, in my personal opinion, you know, COVID affected everybody, you know, but, but think about the people that work like the nine to five gig or the people that, or the corporate guy that, that goes to New York. You know, I, I live in New Jersey. Most of the people that live in my area are working in New York city. They wake up at five, they're home by like nine o'clock at night. So here's the thing, the, the kids go to school. That created a big disruption, big disruption. Why? Got to take, because they have now, the kids are at home, their whole life has been upended, but the creative person, right? Like, as you said, you said to me that COVID was the best thing that happened to you. I, I, I actually would have like, is this guy just putting me on? Because I, no. I, there's some, there's some people be like, oh, I've done so great during COVID. I don't believe a lot. I don't of mean that. I don't mean that. I, I, I mean, it's but not, I believe, I, but I believe you. No, I'm not. I believe you when you say that. What, what you, I, I do. I made a ba- I made a record with a band called The Warning from Mexico okay. for, for Universal for Jason Flom, and they came here, masks, rubber gloves. Mm-hmm. We worked in all these studios. It was a challenge. I think that when certain things are under duress in the world, isn't that when the greatest music is made? On villain standing in Washington, 1961, in, with Joan Baez, that was a turning point in music. Vietnam War, turning point in music. All of these things mark time. Music marks time. And when something happens, it marks time. And that's why, to me, something needed to change. And, David, and David, and I agree with you, as you said, the, for creative people and for music entrepreneurs, when did they succeed? In dark times. I mean, what, I mean, I went to Pennsylvania and what Hershey, Pennsylvania, I don't know if you've ever been to Hershey, Pennsylvania, sure. but, but the, the guy that started Hershey's milk chocolate started it during like the great depression. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I think this is, it's interesting because here's the one thing I said. I said teenagers. Imagine, weren't you happy when your parents went to work? You know, your dad left and you had your mom there and you could do stuff. You could turn the stereo up. You could make any kind. But when dad's home, you know, it was tough. You know, now dad's home, you know, for all these kids. And they now have to like, dad has to learn how to have a relationship or mom who works as well with their, with their kids. So it's been really interesting to see the dynamics of relationships change over the last couple of years. All of this, I think, is positive. I don't think we see that right now. But I think two years from now, these kids, when they get married and have their own kids, they go, you know what I had to do? I had to stay. It was like the war. Remember when the war, you couldn't go anywhere. 19, you know, 1942, you have to stay home. If you were in Europe, you couldn't. You know, bombs would be dropping, families would be go sleep in the subway, you know, under the so I think families had to learn how to eat together, how to watch TV together, how to you know play music together. So different relationships have changed, you know. So, no, David, so- I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I, I think that when COVID hit, the world was at the pinnacle of narcissism with big with the help of big tech 
And I remember, again, having this discussion, you know, prior to COVID hit, you know, especially, you know, you go on Instagram every day and you see this high level of narcissism. And I'm like, something's just going to have to change. This system cannot just last forever. You know, you, you said the word narcissism, which is always interesting because the truth about narcissists is they don't know they are one. That's right. But you could sit there and say, you know, by the way, you're a narcissist. And they go, what's that? You know, or how can you say that about me? So some people are never going to really understand what's going on until they experience different things in their lives. Right. And but, but, but a narcissist can't experience because they have no empathy or feelings. So it's tough for them to reflect on things, right? But, but big tech has promoted the narcissist. Right. Big tech's get, given it a platform. You know, that's all you see. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, but now everyone's going, well, wait a minute. Maybe that's kind of cheesy. You know, maybe I don't have to look like that in a 30 second video because it's cheesy. You know, there's all these fake videos now because they've run out of ideas. You know, all these fake scenarios that people are, oh, that's not real. They're acting, you know. So it's run its course. It has run its course, David. No, it has. And lastly, I really hope we talked about some things changing. You know, it seems like big tech took the power from the creatives. It was the artists that created trends. The creative people created trends. It was now like Twitter and Facebook and Google. They're the ones that decided to create trends. And if you didn't hop on their bandwagon, you weren't going to get exposure. So remember, and I want everyone to understand this. The problem that I've always had with big tech is they have created this monoculture. They don't encourage creativity. They do not. They actually punish uniqueness and creativity. Artists were so quick to say, screw the label, screw the label, screw the label, screw the label. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think every business is in business to make money. It's never, I think, you know, you can't sit here and tell me every record company in the world is in it because they love music. I'm not saying they're not in it to make money, but I'm saying that the way they're set up to make money. Right, but you know, every big hierarchy is dismantled. Right. Eventually. It is. So we're just in the era right now where we're watching it peak, like you said. So the question is, what's next? And that's where the creative people come in and go, you know what? Elon Musk is a great example. You know, he was building spaceships, what, 25, 30 years ago when everybody thought he was out of his mind. You know, or, or the electric car was not even a, an idea. So there's, no, he's not, he, there's not a lot of Elon Musk, but there's a lot of amazing visionaries in the world. Yes, yes. And there's a lot of highly intelligent risk takers. And those are the people that are going to change the world. You know, those are the people that are going to make it creative again. Those are the people going to find a new way to get music. To- so speaking about creative projects, what are you working on right now? Right now. I'm working with, uh, I've just done a record with a band called Icy Stars, which are really cool. And uh, that's been fun. Luke Holland played drums. He's an amazing drummer. He's got like a lot of YouTube followers. Uh, and I'm about to mix that soon. Um, I just worked on, um, like I said, this band, The Warning. 
and the album comes out soon, although we'll see what happens with all the touring. I'll, you know, all the touring stays this summer is going to be a big deal for a lot of artists. Uh, and I'm starting to work on a movie soundtrack, which I'm really excited about. And I love uh, the idea. I can't really talk about it, but it's pretty cool. And I'm teaching at Berkeley, the master's production class, the master's of, of Berkeley. So that's is it is it an online course or do you, yeah. is it? Yeah. yeah. Great. So is everything, is everything online at Berkeley now or are they? Actually yes, everything moved online. But I was teaching this online class three years ago. So it, I was ready. I was already zoomed in. I was ready to go. When that happened, I was like, yeah, it's like a normal day for me. You know? Well, you know, Dave, um, it was a great discussion. And um, I mean, we covered everything from music to aliens to pretty much big tech. Um, but no, I mean, again, um, I'm going to follow what you're doing. I, you know, I'll, I'll follow a lot. I'm going to. I see. You know, we should say something to the listeners here. Sure. I mean, Dean, I've known right when I started the first Breaking Benjamin record we met, which is now. 16, 17 years ago, you were just a young upstart. You know, you really loved music. You were passionate about music. And the thing that I've always liked about you, Dean, is you've always been a student of all of this. In other words, you never said, well, that's the way it is. Or you would ask a lot of people a lot of questions. And I always thought today, if there's anything missing, somebody say, what's missing? It would be that people don't ask enough questions from people that actually know, that have been around, been around that scene, especially music. So, you know, you've, you've never, ever stopped. Even like me, when money wasn't involved, when there was nothing to get, to garner out of it, you've pursued a career based on your passion. And that is really what it's always all about. It isn't about much else. You know, it isn't about. Well, well, well you, you know, know, David, you know, the thing is when I started, the thing is when I started my uh, site, you know, I would like, at first I was getting calls from all these presidents and, um, you know, I remember I was sitting in the um, office of Atlantic and I was a pharmaceutical rep and I was making well over a hundred thousand dollars a year, company right. car, stock options, and was well over that it was actually almost probably like a $200,000 package. Now, mind wow. you, I was only, I was in my mid twenties. Okay. I was one of the youngest guys working for the company. So anyway, I told you this, I didn't like working these jobs. I mean, right. it was very demoralizing to me, but here is the thing. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed what I learned, but I love music. So I start this blog. So he says to me, how much do you make? And I told him, he goes, I can never pay you anywhere near that. So I said to him, I don't care. I'll work for free. Yeah. You know, really, I, I was, I did. I left my job and I worked for nothing. Right. I think when passion comes into anything and goodwill, all those things, good things happen. You know, something leads to, like, when I go back, just to go back to my records that I've made, I couldn't have made Paramore, right? With, if I wouldn't have made, Hawthorne Heights and Red Jumpsuit right before it. I mean, everything we do leads to something. And, you know, yeah, some things are going to fail terribly. They're going to be awful. They're going to be a nightmare. But what you glean out of it, moving on with your life to the next thing, you don't realize how much you've learned. 
mm-hmm. how much you how much you can change something the next time you do it. So it's a matter of being at the right place at the right time. It is. And, and David, you know what I've learned from you, obviously, is that, I mean, I remember you're like, hey, Dean, you know, send me a bunch of really good artists. And I did. I'm like, OK, I sent you a bunch of artists that had really, really good songs. But if you remember, every single artist just fell apart just like that. And I remember you said to me, Dean, it's not just about the songs. You're not finding the artist who really want to go all the way. And think about it, David, how many artists based on fear? (laughs) You've seen this. And I'm like, and that's what I, yeah. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, it must be wonderful to be in the studio working with amazing musicians. I said, actually, it's terrible. (laughs) What do you mean? I said, well, they're so good, they don't need to be told anything. And it's kind of boring because they could do it all perfectly. But that person that shows up two hours early to the session and is working their ass off and isn't quite good enough, they're going to give you a thousand percent and work till three o'clock in the morning and kill it. And you're going to have something incredible at the end. Those are the records that are great. Yeah. No offense to the perfect playing, perfect timing, perfect internet. It's always people that bring something special to a record that makes the difference. And I think that's what this has always been about. You're either part of the community or you're not. Agreed. That's, that's actually, that's really good. You're either part of it or you're not. So... All right, David, um, again, uh, I'm going to check out all your new creative projects. Um, thanks for popping on. It was great. And um, let, let's, uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome.